0: LinkedIn presents.
1: I'm Rufus Griscom and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, how to predict the future. One of my favorite movies of all time is Back to the Future.
0: Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. Uh, are you telling me that you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? The way
1: I see it, if you're gonna build a time machine into a car, why not do it with some style? Besides, the stainless steel construction made the flux dispersal. Look out! <laughs> What if I told you that if you wanna build a time machine, you don't need a stainless steel car, or any car for that matter. What if I told you that if you wanna visit the future, all you have to do is close your eyes. It's May 30th, 2032. I wake up to the smell of fresh coffee brewed with nutrients, probiotics, and antioxidants, modified daily based on my iPhone's blood monitor analysis. I'm excited because today is Sunday, and every Sunday, my almost perfect wife and I host a brunch salon. Yes, brunch is still a thing in the future. Oh, that reminds me, I have to go pick up our special guest at the airport. So I drain my cup of coffee, throw on some clothes, and slide down the fire pole that goes straight from my bedroom to the garage. I don't own a car anymore, but I do share a pool of custom cars with a club, and today I've reserved the 1973 Cadillac convertible. No, that's not quite how it sounds. You see, this Cadillac is special. Covered in a kaleidoscopic fractal pattern, it's built on a Tesla sled, fully electric. En route to the airport, I asked my AI assistant, Fred, Can you suggest an opening toast for brunch based on the podcast we did 10 years ago?
2: Would that be the interview that ran on May 26th, 2022 about the book Imaginable?
1: Yep, that's the one. I'll get right on it. Now that I think about it, I realize I can probably write a better toast myself. I heard that. It's nothing against you, Fred. Don't be so sensitive. It's just that I remember this particular podcast conversation like it was yesterday. That's why I'm going to the airport to collect the author myself instead of sending a self-driving car.
0: Oh, you know, I really, I like this. I mean, like, so my mind is jumping all over the place as, as a good futurist. So interestingly, I'm, I give you like two homework assignments based yes, on this yeah. amazing thing you've imagined. One is to search a little bit around the future of coffee. The other homework assignment is that we should... Uh, we should get to know each other better. Rufus, you're imagining me in your future. And I was trying, like, <laughs> yeah. oh, if we're, if we're like such good friends that I'm rolling up to your Tesla sled in 10 years, uh, we should like definitely plan to talk again sometime in the next 10 years.
1: That's Jane McGonigal, future forecaster, game designer, and New York Times bestselling author, my guest on the show today, and I hope at a brunch salon 10 years from now. In her latest book, Imaginable, how to see the future coming and feel ready for anything, even things that seem impossible today, Jane writes, the state of the planet is one of collective shock. Need proof? How about this? In the past two years, there were 2.5 million news stories with the word unimaginable in them. Now, I'm guessing that a lot of those stories were about the COVID-19 pandemic. Who could have seen that coming, right? Well, Jane did. Back in 2010, she ran a future simulation game for the World Bank where, and I'm quoting from the book now, 20,000 players were immersed in a future world that was dealing with a global respiratory pandemic that had started in China, and an outbreak of social media-driven misinformation and conspiracy theories about the pandemic, and historic wildfires up and down the west coast of the United States due to climate change, and a shocking collapse of the power grid due to aging infrastructure and extreme weather. Talk about clairvoyance. Though that's not really the point of Jane's work. She doesn't run these simulations so she can look back a decade later and say, I told you so. She runs them because the latest research in psychology and neuroscience shows us that if we train our minds to imagine the unimaginable, we will be better prepared if the unthinkable actually comes to pass. That's what happened to the folks who participated in Jane's pandemic simulation. When COVID-19 hit, they didn't feel panicky and helpless like so many of us did. They knew what to do and they acted accordingly. In Imaginable, Jane shares techniques we could all use to predict the future and maybe even influence it. She invites her readers to imagine in vivid detail what their lives will be like in 10 years. What global trends will impact us in the coming decade? How should we respond to looming crises like extreme heat from climate change or the radicalization of young people via social media? What are the things we should get excited about? Universal basic income? The chance to reinvent higher education? If we can learn as individuals and as a society to anticipate what's coming and respond to it creatively, we'll be in much better shape when the future rolls around. Jane's book has been a hit with our curators. Adam Grant called it eye-opening and actionable. Dan Pink said reading it was like, quote, sitting down with a creative, optimistic friend and getting up as a new version of yourself. It's always occurred to me that change is inevitable. So it's good to befriend change. Jane has this great comment about befriending your future self. And your future self is going to be different. And that's a beautiful thing. This process of imagining your life 10 years from now is an invitation to embrace positive change and put it into
2: action. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off.
1: Jane McGonigal, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast.
0: Thank you, Rufus. I'm so excited to be here. I listen all the time. I love it. Well, Jane, I've always thought
1: I had a pretty cool job, but I think you might win the coolest job (laughs) contest, right? Director of Games Research and Development at the Institute for the Future in Palo Alto. You also teach a class at Stanford called How to Think Like a Futurist. Do you think you have one of the coolest jobs on the planet?
0: I definitely have one of the hardest to explain what I do at jobs, which I think is often very uh, closely aligned with having a cool job, for sure.
1: <laughs> yeah, I can see you at like parent night, like, oh, yeah, doctor, lawyer, futurist and games developer. <laughs> that, <laughs> Let me
0: tell you, my I have seven-year-old twin daughters. They just yeah. started school this year, and it has taken me until now, May, a whole school year for any of the parents that I've met to truly understand, oh, I get it. Uh, so that has it's taken, yeah, a whole school year.
1: I could imagine. well, and and your path from studying video games and designing video games mm. to working as a futurist, uh, some would see that as as counterintuitive. I think you see this as a logical progression. why does that why does that sequencing make sense?
0: What first really fascinated me about the gaming community was this trend that I was observing in gamers noticing that they were developing real skills, real abilities, collective intelligence, collective imagination that they wanted to apply in a bigger context, maybe help solve some real world challenges, work with scientists. And now this was back in 2001 when I was starting my PhD work mm. and I thought this is amazing. It would be really good for humanity if we could indeed find a way to channel some of these new skills that are coming out of online gaming into real-world problem solving. But at that time, there were not a lot of games to play that actually connected this community with real-world challenges. And for me, after studying it for you know five, six years, writing my dissertation on this topic i rolled right into i'm going to be the one to make some games that help gamers apply those strengths to real world contexts and the the context that i wound up working in was trying to anticipate hard to predict futures or apply that collective imagination to seeing future scenarios from massively many points of view, the same Mm. way that we see a game world, so that we might kind of discover the outlier risks or unexpected opportunities. And and that's what I've been doing now since uh, it's been 15 years now.
1: So cool. And you're also an advocate for video games more broadly, I, I believe. And by the way, my kids, who rarely listen, but maybe they will this time, <laughs> will be thrilled to hear that playing a lot of video games could could potentially get you places. Mm. <laughs> uh, I, I think you've said every human being should participate in some gaming culture mm-hmm. in the same way that every human being should read and should exercise. Yes. Now, in the parenting circles I traveled and this would raise a few eyebrows. Why do you think we should all play video games?
0: There's a really beautiful experience that happens when we learn a new game. And so maybe I could even expand this to say we should all be participating in new game communities, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Exposing ourselves to experiences that have been intentionally designed to be challenging and to Mm -hmm. frustrate us and to require us to learn new skills and think creatively and ask others for help. And when we... Are frequently exposing ourselves to these types of challenges, then we get the opportunity to experience personal growth, personal development, build confidence in our ability to get better at something that we are objectively quite bad at the first time we try it. And that is generalizable. That is the biggest finding from game Mm, studies, the field of game research over the past 20 years that people who do play games a lot and specifically, are willing to learn how to play new games, Mm -hmm. do develop this incredibly powerful confidence in their ability to learn new skills and get better at challenges through their own efforts and attention and the help of others. Because really the gaming community is a teaching community, right? With all of our wikis and our live streams, we're all helping each other get better at these games.
1: So this this mission to take our interest in gaming and collective kind of imagining exercises and 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 use that to help us better understand possible future outcomes. You and your team have been engaged in this for a while, as you say, and you have kind of an astoundingly impressive track record at anticipating possible future outcomes. Can you share some of the details of uh, of what you all have done?
0: Sure. I mean, 2020 was a really strange year to be a future forecaster. Yeah. In that, you know, I had an experience, but I think many forecasters had this experience of living through a very difficult future that we had been forecasting for a decade or more. And my work at the Institute for the Future did involve creating these simulation games, these social simulations way back in 2008, 2010, where we were inviting thousands of people to spend weeks in a private social network where it it would look like Twitter, look like Facebook or Discord, but everything being posted and shared was about a hypothetical possible future. And futurists love to look 10 years ahead, because that gives us enough sort of mental distance to think more creatively and freely. And also, if we're imagining problems that might not happen for 10 years, it gives us enough time to prepare for them or prevent them. So we were looking at the years 2019 and 2020. And back then, our simulation centered around how would we survive and adapt to a respiratory pandemic that started in China that was also complicated by cascading crises one of the things that i specialize in is figuring out how different crises and disruptions would intersect so we're not just looking at it from a public health perspective or an epidemiology perspective but also supply chains and social media so we were also thinking about how would we survive and adapt when we have the supply chain disruptions, when there is misinformation and conspiracy theories about the pandemic being spread on social media, when there are historic wildfires and extreme heat waves due to climate change and uh that's just what we lived through in 2020 and what made me sort of crazy for a little while feel crazy and want to write the book imaginable is that there was this incredible proliferation of news stories and headlines using the word unimaginable to describe the pandemic and its consequences. And it clearly wasn't unimaginable. Maybe we didn't have enough of a sort of critical mass of people imagining it. We had, yeah. you know, 20,000 people in one of our simulations and 8,000 in another my goal is to have 20 million, um, yeah, I think yeah. would would really help us prepare for the future.
1: It's just astonishing that in 2008, 2009, 2010, that you were running these exercises, anticipating a virus originating in China. Uh, I, I mean, to some degree, there must have been some good luck in, in just that, that forecast. But then what was even more astonishing was some of the human responses Mm -hmm. right? that your exercises revealed that ended up being predictive of some of what we struggled with in the last couple of years.
0: Yeah. So let me give you a few examples. Um, My favorite thing about these social simulations, they don't work like a typical computer simulation where you design some algorithms, you punch in some data, you hit a button, and then the computer says, okay, here's what would happen. This many people would get infected. This many people would lose their jobs. We don't ask the computer to tell us what would happen. We ask the participants, and we ask really down-to-earth practical questions like, let's say you have been told to isolate or quarantine. You've been exposed. You're sick. You have to stay at home for two weeks. You can't go to work. Under what circumstances would you violate this order or not follow these instructions? Tell a story. And so people would write stories like like a social media post um, and say, okay, well, look, I'm going to church because this is so important to me and I can't abandon my faith, even Mm -hmm. if I'm supposed to isolate. Or they would write stories about going to their daughter's wedding or a funeral. And in fact... All of the things that people said they were most likely to violate quarantine or isolation orders for became the super spreading events in 2020. And in February 2020, we hosted a webinar at the Institute for the Future trying to share some of our findings from having run these pandemic simulations. And, wow. you know, I'm there on YouTube you can you can find the webinar. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, if you lead a congregation, you you run a synagogue, you've got some worship practices that you're in charge of, you're going to have to make them virtual. Get ready because this is the number one thing people are going to put themselves at risk for. And, and that is literally worldwide turned out to be true. All of the seating events, th- they were... They were religious gatherings because it is so important to people. And the thing that experts can miss by trying to make predictions about behavior during, you know, any kind of crisis like a pandemic is if you don't talk to enough ordinary people, it is it is actually kind of hard to predict because people make irrational mm-hmm. choices. Yep. They're driven by values. They take risks we wouldn't guess they would take. So, yeah, just talking to ordinary people and collecting that lived experience, like people are imagining what they would do. They're using their own knowledge of themselves and their needs and their hopes and their fears and the values. That is really good, actionable information. And it makes me hopeful that if we continue to run these kinds of games, hopefully with more people over time, that when we face these new unthinkable events, you know, that we'll we mm-hmm. will have thought about mm-hmm. it and yeah. we'll, we'll have some data that we could apply
1: Yeah, and and when we think about this objective, which I think, having read your book, is is a very important objective of turning us all into futurists, Mm. right? I I think I think what a lot of people ask is, oh, I'm not clairvoyant, I can't I I can't see the future. And you point out that like actually, your job as a futurist is not to be an expert in every domain. We have plenty of experts: they're climate scientists and epidemiologists, and natural security researchers, and economic forecasters, Mm. and and it's really like all of this was stuff that we could foresee it sounds like what you and your team are doing is listening to the experts Mm -hmm. and then engaging you know significant samplings of people in exercises of imagination in order to anticipate human responses and think through unintended consequences and and as you say how these kind of multiple different changing dynamics could intersect
0: that's right and it's really important for me to underline what you just said you know there's nothing magic about the forecasts that I have made. Anybody who was talking to experts in 2008 and 2010, were are making similar forecasts. What we need to, I think, build our collective capacity to do is, is our willingness and our ability to pay serious attention and serious imagination to scenarios that, I don't know, maybe we don't want to think about them because it it seems like it would be scary to think about them we kind of will put it out of our mind mm-hmm. we'll deal with it if we ever actually have to live through it Or to put information in our minds to expose ourselves to enough clues about the future that we can imagine things that we might otherwise call unimaginable just because Mm -hmm. we don't know about them. Like, what would it be like to live through a massive geoengineering effort? Well, if you don't know anything about those technologies and what the possible benefits and maybe risks or downsides are, you literally can't imagine it because you just don't have any information. So it's not that we need to have a crystal ball. It's mm-hmm. that we need to be willing to put that emotional energy and that mental energy into sitting with things that maybe sound like they should be scary <laughs> to imagine. But actually, it turns out when you give yourself permission and that 10 year timeline, right? Because we're always imagining things mm-hmm. that are 10 years out. So yes. it's not that scary because it's not going to happen until. You know, yeah, you've got plenty yeah. of time, use, use yeah. that confidence that comes from imagining far in advance.
1: Well, and it, it struck me reading your book that that there are two reasons why this kind of anticipation or this kind of imaginative exercise is really important. One is obviously that, you know, we need to anticipate future developments to try to steer clear of them or improve the world. Uh, we're homo prospectus. This is what we're good at. This is what, what we're supposed to be as a species better at than other animals. And, you know, there's a lot of practical value there. But the second is this psychological factor, right? That, Mm -hmm. as you point out, people are really despondent right now. And I I was Mm -hmm. astonished by this study published in The Lancet surveying 10,000 young people between the ages of 16 and 25 mm-hmm. to find out how anxious climate change makes them. 75% said they think the future is frightening. 59% are extremely worried about climate change. 45% said those worries are negatively affecting their daily lives. And these are our young people, <laughs> you know, yeah. who are who are like almost paralyzed with, with, with anxiety.
0: Well, and you left out my my, like what I consider the most stunning finding from that study, which is, that a majority agreed with the statement, humanity is doomed and I have no future. That inability to imagine the scale of positive action that societies could take, that sense that there is no solution to what is looming, that's really the space that I want to intervene by creating these scenarios where we're not just imagining risks, Many of the scenarios that I develop for games and that are inimaginable are descriptions of incredible global scale efforts to solve problems in ways that might be, again, difficult to adapt to at first, it would be a little bumpy road, mm-hmm. but to try to plant some seeds of imagination so that yeah. these young people say, okay, there's at least one road ahead that I can imagine it might be hard to get to. And we're going to have to, you know, create new forms of protests and movements and politics and whatever it will take. But at least I can see that I do have one possible future that I would be excited to wake up in.
1: Yeah. Well, as it happens, Jane, this morning, I had a conversation with my brother who's a climate scientist. Mm-hmm. And he has been banging pots and pans for decades now, telling me and our family and every everyone else he knows, like, folks, this is we got a really serious problem coming. Here's a brief clip from my conversation with my little brother, Bronson, this morning. Climate change is forcing our hand to leap forward into a better world. Or we're screwed. And that is a double or nothing bet. Strangely, I'm optimistic. If we lean into this thing, we can fix it. And we can actually make the world even better than it was before. And so his his view on the on the making the world better than it was before is that is that actually you know other objectives we have like having more biodiversity, having more protected beautiful landscapes, having clean energy and clean air that we that we're now seeing an inflection point where there's dramatically more investment in new technologies. For him, it's been very disorienting because he spent twenty years feeling like the world is oblivious, and just the last several years feeling like. The world has just become despondent and is not recognizing that there's still a lot of room to do a lot of things to end up with a, a much better world than we think.
0: Absolutely. I'm really glad you shared that clip. That's amazing. It reminds me of something that the historian and activist Rebecca Solnit mm-hmm. always says, that the root of the word emergency is emerge. Right, So we are in a climate emergency, but
1: yeah, out of yeah.
0: that, new things will emerge new solutions and i mean we can electrify everything and then we'll have clean energy and then we'll have abundance and all the people we hire to make that transition to clean solar and wind that will be incredible job building and job expansion and people will learn yeah. new skills so there'll be more schools and i mean there's so much positive that we can imagine i'll can i share with you a signal of change that has also reinforced you know exactly what what your brother said and what yeah, i am yeah. um, what we're talking about. So we we have these things that we track and share and analyze as futurists called Signals of Change. They're just real things that are happening today that give us a sneak peek at what the future might be like. And there's some new language uh, that I'm very excited about that I'm starting to see pop up on social media and, and hear out in the wild. And it's uh, an adaption of the phrase okay boomer, which was, you know, sort of derogatory, dismissive right, thing to sure, say. Sure. People older generations, mindsets, stuck mindsets. Um, the new version of that, have you heard the new version of that, Rufus? Do you I don't
1: know if, I don't know if I have.
0: It's okay doomer. And oh, interesting.
1: I have not heard yes, that. Yes. Right. So I it's a way
0: it. of dismissing, I guess, people who are uh. overly anxious or hopeless about climate change, specifically right under that 16, you know, the 16 to 25 year olds in that that Lancet mm-hmm. Planetary Health Journal study. Uh, they, they're definitely feeling hopeless, but right under them, get under 16 and you've got the next generation wants to swing the pendulum in the other direction.
1: I wonder sometimes whether there's an asymmetry between the obviousness of problems and the obviousness of solutions. I mean, we see these problems mounting in slow motion. It's like a slow motion, you know, train wreck or car accident. Mm-hmm, like we, mm-hmm. we're just watching this happen with climate change in slow motion. It's very painful. We also obviously see a lot of other, you know, issues right now with you know geopolitics and social media's impact on ever greater polarization. But but somehow I think the solutions. Are less obvious than the problems and somehow feel mm-hmm. less inevitable. And it's not clear to me whether that's because of human wiring, are we like just mm-hmm. naturally anxious? Is there a <laughs> bias towards alarmism in the media? Where do you think it comes from?
0: Oh, such such good questions, so juicy. Okay, let's let's dive into this. So first, there is certainly that negativity bias. It's the same thing as when you get feedback on your job and you hear a hundred wonderful things and one negative thing, and that one negative thing is the only one one that you actually think about and get stuck in your brain. Um, the same thing can happen to us when, we, when we're when we looking for signals of change. We can really get stuck on the ones that seem scary or they, they seem like they're a signal of risk or a signal of crisis. And One really important habit that I teach people to practice when I teach how to think like a futurist and and inimaginable is to actively balance what we're planning into our imagination. So we talk about positive imagination and shadow imagination. Everybody actually has a different tendency. Some people really do, you know, you might call them the techno-optimists, especially in Silicon Valley. Some people are sort of naturally, they collect all the good stuff and maybe they downplay the risks or maybe unintended harms. Other people are more naturally drawn to their shadow side and they're really, it's very easy for them to see what could go wrong or predict uh, complications. And what we need to do, all of us, is balance out that natural tendency. And for me, Personally, there's a very simple habit that I practice when I start to feel like I'm hearing a lot of negative signals and I, and I want to feel confident that there are solutions. We literally just go to Google, go to Google News, go to mm-hmm. Google Scholar and type in what you would like to see. See if you mm. can just manifest through a search engine Things that would give you more hope and confidence. And what I find is that on any given day, there will be a news story about a breakthrough idea, a new policy that's being experimented with. It's a new clinical trial that's getting started. You know, just go type in something you're interested in, future of food, future of democracy, and then add some positive words. New solution, breakthrough, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. positive advances, amazing experiment. and. All that information is out there. We just have to make sure we're planting those seeds in our mind alongside the kind of doom and gloom.
1: I think it should be said, by the way, that the 16 to 25-year-olds are not wrong. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. Right? In the sense that actually, that a certain amount of anxiety about the future is probably a healthy adaptation. As long as we use that anxiety to motivate us, in in positive directions, and and also and also remain aware of the breadth of solutions. We we had Ray Dalio on the show recently, who who has I, I who listened has a, to that episode. Oh, you did! Oh, great, great, <laughs> yeah. great. And I love his motto. You know, if you're worrying, you don't have to worry. You know, <laughs> but but it, but there's an interesting sort of complexity to that, which is to say, you should be worrying, but once you've done the sort of diligent, conscientious thing, which is to be anticipating a- and taking actions to prevent negative outcomes then you should, you know, stop worrying. <laughs> right? Yeah.
0: well, right. That's what I say in the book. I'm like, worry for five minutes and right. then, and then right. stop. But let me say two things to that. First, you're right that what we might identify as negative emotions are actually very beneficial, especially yeah. during times when we need to act. And I wanted to point out an interesting study just came out in the Journal of Climate Change and Health, and they found that there is a positive emotion they identify as Mm eco-anger. So this is like a kind of righteous anger about failure to act on climate change. And they found that people who feel eco-anger, it actually leads to better personal well-being. Like it's not a sense of powerlessness or hopelessness, which is actually very harmful to our health, feeling out of control, feeling the negative stress that if we get angry about it, then we're fired up, we actually feel motivated, we look for opportunities to communicate and advocate and act, and it actually does lead to people also taking action. So anger, we don't always think about as a positive emotion, but when it comes to the environment, if we can move from anxiety to anger, that will be very productive and, and, and Interesting. helpful for ourselves. You know the other thing that I wanted to say about, you know, how much do we have to to worry? I found it very helpful to actually dig into the scientific literature to to try to figure out how long do we have to spend imagining, you know, the the risky scenarios, you know, the next pandemic, let's say it's tick-borne and it makes everybody mm-hmm. allergic to red meat and other animal right. products. How right. long exactly do we have to imagine that? It only takes five minutes of active imagination. So just literally, as vividly as you can, I'm living in this world, meat is banned, you can't cook out because meat is airborne now. Imagine it for five minutes, and then that's it. That's enough. Now your brain is trained, and if there are news stories about it, if the ticks are appearing in the part of the world where you live more frequently, or a friend has symptoms of this new illness your brain is ready to notice that change faster and jump into action. So you don't have to walk around anxious and imagining terrible things all the time. Just you know, pick a few scenarios, spend five minutes in each world, and then your brain is, is fired up, just in case.
1: Mm-hmm. And I love the detail that you received a bunch of emails from people who participated in your 2008, 2010 mm-hmm. studies who felt empowered. I mean, they very early on saw what was happening with COVID, Took the necessary precautions and really felt ready for it, right? And and were in a much psychologically healthier place because they'd been through this this uh, exercise.
0: Yes, it was really interesting. I, you know, I I don't know that it actually prevented anybody from catching COVID nineteen, but the people who were writing me earlier, they f- they said things like they were feeling less anxiety than others. They like had more clarity that they weren't in denial. They were able to shut things down faster and move ahead with virtual versions faster. And they just sort of opted out of that that early phase where it was like a combination of denial, which was not productive, and and just feeling like, I don't understand. This is like unthinkable. What's being asked of me, what we're seeing. People who had previously imagined it vividly were able to skip past that sort of shock and, and getting stuck or frozen with anxiety and, and just get to the business of you know, rolling up our sleeves and living through it as best as we could. Mm-hmm. I think that should not be underestimated or undervalued. Um, in Imaginable, I write about some research looking at the idea of essentially pre-traumatic exposure, where if we are reading stories about difficult things that we might need to live through or we're vividly imagining it, when we do experience it, the first emotion we have is a sense of premonition or pre-recognition, right? Okay, I knew this could happen. Yes, I saw this coming. And that is a positive emotion. It Mm -hmm. it gives us a sense of like, we were smart enough to, to take it seriously or think about it. We had that clarity. And even though... It may not have changed whether it happened or not. I mean, we're still going to have to live through it. But even starting it from that that level of confidence and feeling like we we knew this could happen, so we're just a little bit more ready. That can change our whole emotional experience of a crisis. And so, I think that is valuable. And if if more of us have that sense of pre recognition that we will be able to adapt to these otherwise unthinkable events better.
1: You know, I I also just loved the the very personal exercise of asking yourself, not where do you wanna be, what do you wanna get accomplished in the next month, where do you wanna be a year from now, but what would you like your life to look like in 10 years, mm-hmm. right? Imagine that, and you you refer to it as, this generates a feeling of time spaciousness. Yes. Rather than time debt. And it was amazing when I, I, so I did this exercise myself, and almost immediately I did feel this sense of sort of, an expansive possibility. It was very, very relaxing to think about yes. my life in ten years, right? Because because all this sort of frenetic urgency that we feel about—I mean, even even thinking about where I'd like to be a year from now—I'm still in this m- constricted mindset of like mm-hmm. a Tetris-like experience of trying to of, of trying to fit too many things in a small mm-hmm. space, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> of mm-hmm. operating—it's it, it, it's a world of constraint opposed to one of abundance, right? And. I think there's some studies that bear this out, one of which, by the way, was basically would say that people with imminent deadlines procrastinate more than people with deadlines that are far off. I thought that was extraordinary.
0: Yes. I mean, just as a, as a fun way to play with this new habit of giving yourself luxurious deadlines, I do tell people to go set like a a deadline on their calendar to finish reading imaginable in the next 10 years. Um, And because it turns out that when we give ourselves these long luxurious deadlines, we feel time rich. And when we feel time rich, we think, ah, I have all this time. I can, I can do what I want. I can do what matters to me. When we have urgent deadlines or too many tasks on our to-do list for today, we feel time poor, time deprived. And then, we just don't use our time because even though we still have the same amount of time, we don't use it because it feels scarce. So there is a kind of like psychological, it's like a, almost like a mind hack aspect to it. But another thing that researchers have found is when we imagine 10 years out, we do tend to think about things that are more relevant to our most important goals values the kinds of goals that would help us live a life that we would consider really authentic, really true to our dreams or what we find meaningful and purposeful. So I give people this challenge of just it's it's not just like what where would you like to be in 10 years or what would you like to be different? To try to vividly imagine waking up on a specific day. You know, you pick a day of the week. Is it a Monday? Is it a Saturday? Is it a Sunday? You imagine yourself waking up and you try to picture it every detail. Where are you? Are you in the same room that you woke up in today or is it a different room? You know, where is it? Is there somebody with you? Is it is it a person? Is it a pet? Is it a different person or pet than you might wake up with today? And then, you know, imagine what mood are you in? Like what mood would you like yeah, to wake yeah. up in? What would put you in that mood? You know, what might be on your calendar for that day? that would put you in that mood you want to be in. And, and then I actually tell people, go put it on your calendar. You know, if you've just imagined yourself doing this amazing thing that makes you feel a certain way, go ahead and, you know, open up Google Calendar, open up your Apple calendar, they do go 10, 20, 30, 40 years in the future and and put it on your calendar. And then even better, invite somebody, invite a loved one, you know, invite your brother, invite your partner to this event 10 years in the future. It just can spark some really interesting conversations about, you know, what are our real hopes, our real dreams? What is it going to take to get there? But because we've given ourselves 10 years, then it allows us to dream bigger and also enjoy that sense of time spaciousness to, you know, really make some changes or explore possibilities that we would dismiss as impossible today.
1: Let's take a quick break. When we come back, Jane and I discuss the global trends that we think will have the greatest influence over our lives in the coming decade.
2: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA.
1: Hi, I'm Jonathan Fields. Tune into my podcast for conversations about the sweet spot between work, meaning, and joy. And also listen to other people's questions about how to get the most out of that thing we call work. Check out Spark wherever you enjoy podcasts. So understanding future forces, if we want to get better at this sort of discipline, of anticipating what's coming. You mentioned the old saying, you can't change the wind but you can adjust your sails. Mm-hmm. If you can understand the forces that are likely to be impacting our next 10 years, that can, you know, is a really critical initial part of this process. You list in the book what you have identified as your own future forces that I guess you see as most impacting the future or your future.
0: Yes, it's personal. You pick the ones that you feel will most impact you, your family, and your community. Um, so for everybody, it, it can actually be quite different depending on who you are, where you live, right?
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And your number one was heat and drought from climate change, which yeah. is partly to do with- um, I live in
0: California. Live in California, right? It is absolutely going to be th- the number one driver of adaptation in California. And I'm I'm optimistic that there will be- Positive adaptations, right, will emerge from the emergency with with possibly a, a better California, but it will require change, and I expect to be changed, yeah, by that effort.
1: Second one you list is post pandemic trauma, mm, um, yes. which I think you which I think you say also there's sort of we can have traumatic growth. Yes, it's both a problem we're dealing with, but also potentially an opportunity.
0: Right. I mean, I wound up taking an amazing free online course from John Hopkins University on mental first aid as a result of sort of mm. thinking about that future force like what can I do to be ready if really as as we are seeing evident in data and trends more people are dealing with sustained symptoms of depression and anxiety and loneliness yeah. and 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 trauma that we've lived with and grief um so you know I it is something I want to be ready to help others to be a sort of mental first aid responder to people in my life and community. But also, as you said, with any of these future forces, we're trying to balance our positive and shadow imagination. And even though post-pandemic trauma, you know, it's not a positive future force on the whole, um, we do see that there's a high incidence of post-traumatic growth coming out of pandemics where many people will say they feel personally changed and motivated To take action, to improve society, to help others. And and I am optimistic that, you know, the next decade, maybe it's a little bit of eco-anger combined with post-pandemic trauma, that we are going to have a really big opportunity to change society, that people are looking around and saying, well, is that the best we could do? No, it is not. Let's try something different. So again, it's like a lot of these future it's like where are there opportunities for change? And we pay attention to these future forces so that maybe we can help participate in that change.
1: That's so interesting. Yeah, so so you see this next decade as a particular opportunity. I think you referenced Toffler's book, Future Shock, Mm -hmm. which came out in 1970. And he was calling out that, hey, this is a moment where the pace of change is a, a traumatic force. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we need to address. And and we also have to anticipate this acceleration of technology and all the effects it might have. And this is, I mean, do you think this is another decade of where there's, there's unusual opportunity?
0: Yes, both an acceleration of technological change, social change. Um, it's i mean it's very much like the late 1960s which were so turbulent politically economically socially and technologically and and we're definitely it's it's that time again and and we do have a choice you know we can be shocked by it or we can we can be ready for it and and that is part of why I feel like future thinking, it's having a moment, you know, people yeah. are paying more attention to this, this type of skill set, like how, how can we think about the future more effectively, more systematically, more strategically, more creatively. And, and, you know, it's almost, I, there was a big surge in design thinking, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. a decade yeah. ago, and that had an important role to play in in work becoming more inclusive and innovative and developing empathy. And I think we're we're in a similar moment now where we there will be many more people picking up these skills and practicing futures thinking techniques so that we can help each other avoid future shock because it is traumatic and we don't want to be shocked. We want to be ready.
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm going to list, Jane, your other four future forces and then you can pick whichever you like mm-hmm. to talk about. Radicalization of young people via social media, widespread facial recognition technology, universal basic income, and reinvention of higher education to be more affordable, which I hope will happen before all of my kids are out of college.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, a universal basic income is, is I think the most clearly positive. And I just I if I had like one of the questions that I like to ask people when we do futures work together is is what what problem or challenge do you personally feel called to help mm-hmm. solve? And and for me, this this sense of insecurity and this artificial yeah. scarcity that we have designed into society is the biggest problem I feel called to hail uh, hail to um, help solve. And yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's why, you know, we could have a whole other hour-long conversation about NFTs and cryptocurrencies yeah. and Web3, and I am really going to be on the front lines yelling, do not build artificial scarcity into the next version of the internet. It has traumatized people. It has yep. led to suffering, real suffering. Um, and universal basic income to me is like sort of the, the symbol of the alternative, right? How do we build in abundance? And any metaverse, any you know cryptocurrency that, that really addresses all of humanity needs to have UBI built into it, as do our traditional economies.
1: I absolutely could talk with you about UBI for an hour <laughs> because I'm 100 percent with you. And we had Andrew Yang on the show, mm-hmm. and and I went into that conversation this was a few years ago, you know, somewhat skeptical, just thinking, well, well, this would be lovely, but can we afford it? Is it practical? I, and I did a few weeks of research and preparation for that, and and I really came out thinking, like, you know what, this is something. That is within our lifetimes, yes, achievable. And and what's even more exciting about it to me than than I mean, obviously, you know, it, it can be transformative for so many people's lives. But I also think that the cultural impact is potentially more profound than people realize.
0: Yes, and you know, it's interesting. Um, I was working with an economic security initiative when the idea of UBI started to get a lot of traction in Silicon Valley, and. There was a lot of sort of early divisiveness and, and even early politicalization of this idea. Like, we don't, we don't want to, it's somehow morally wrong to give people money for free, or we'll make people lazy, or yeah, like stay yeah. home and play video games all day. So I developed for this group just a really quick future imagination activity that I found really effective for getting people to sort of step out of that abstract sort of knee jerk reaction. Is it right or wrong to do this? Just by asking them to imagine that they have received a $500 or $1,000 check in the mail. It comes with a thank you note. It has thanked you for something that you have done and you're going to be receiving it every month, you know, for the rest of your life. And also all of your friends and family members are receiving the checks. Now, Mm. just imagine what do you do with that first check. What are you spending that money on? And then imagine calling your mom and asking her, and what does she tell you that she's spending it on? And now your kids who got one, what are they doing with it? And it turned out that when people stopped thinking about the sort of big politics of it or the abstract morality of this idea, when they actually imagined in their own lives and communities what the practical, real impacts would be, they were able to just think about it in a yep, way that yep. was more, more helpful, right? And and I, I'm hoping that we can do that for other types of transformative policies. One of the things I'm looking at that is definitely controversial is the idea of much more open immigration systems in, in the coming decades. And Again, people get very anxious. Ah, what do we, you know, it just seems scary. But when you ask people, what would you do Mm, if you could live anywhere? Yeah. Then it changes. So I do think there's something about bringing a little more personal imagination into these policy debates is also really helpful. We can get out of the divisive disagreements and just think more practically, what would I do? And how would it help me? And how would I feel? And maybe we can find our way to taking a little more action instead of being so resistant to change.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And well, on the subject of managing abundance versus managing scarcity, I was, uh, I listened, I think it was yesterday to your conversation with Tim Ferriss. And mm. uh, you talked about the future of sex. <laughs> uh, and so this would be a, a scarcity of orgasms versus abundance of orgasms. Yes. <laughs> right? yes. you, you all talked about how immersive VR porn and even potentially neural implants. Could result in sort of orgasms on demand, or much less of an experience of like, I am failing as a Homo sapien to pair bond successfully and and achieve this this uh, you know this goal I've, I'm so uh, driven towards. Perhaps particularly for males, right, who tend to be very for, mm-hmm, young, mm-hmm. for for young men. And I was interested in. I think it was a comment that you would made that that maybe this could have a meaningful cultural impact.
0: Yeah. So first of all, I will say um, it will be helpful if we could run a little future forecasting game around this and ask people, would you, you know, accept this neural implant? Would you use it? How often would you use it? Would you replace, you know, real life? dating and mating rituals with it. You know, it's good to start the conversation now before the technology is available. We have, I think, a leisurely uh, at least 10 years before we have to live through this. So we could start getting some real data from people about, you know, how they feel about it. Speculatively, I will say, it reminds me of, you know, until fairly recently, humans had to spend most of our time and energy getting food. And there was no time or energy for art and culture and and all the other things that we produced. I mean, literally, you would wake up and your entire day would be spent trying to get food. And that was it. That was, that was where we put all our energy. And I think if we maybe imagine some kind of technology that allows us in the same way that modern food technology allows us to not be thinking about how am I going to feed myself every waking moment of the day— If we can free up that same scale of time and energy for humanity away from dating and mating that, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, that will unleash a lot of time and energy potentially into something else. We don't know what it would be yet, but I I, I think it could be as transformative as developing food systems and agriculture Mm -hmm. and the technologies Mm -hmm. that, I mean, we just, we... It is hard to imagine how much human effort was spent just trying to sustain basic nutrition. And now mm-hmm. we have it abundantly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. so that that's sort of where my mind goes with that. Um, and I try to keep an open mind about technologies. I always try to imagine why would people adopt this? It's interesting, it's not quite the same technology, but in 2016 at the Institute for the Future, we ran a future forecasting game about neurosensing social media platforms with 10,000 high school students. And we were asking them if, if there were a social network that was able to communicate unfiltered thoughts and emotions, would you sign up for it? And mm. who would you allow to follow you? And who would you want to follow? Who would you want to feel? You know? And, and who would you block? And um, how might it... You, change your dating and your friendships and your relationship with your parents and activism and learning and and everything and they came up with I think a hundred thousand personal predictions and I was really surprised by the desire that they Express to get on a platform like this. I mean, to, I think to a lot of people, it sounds quite dystopian, the, like a version of Facebook or Twitter that's just sending out your unfiltered, authentic thoughts and emotions. But something I've learned over 15 years of future forecasting is we should not underestimate the appetite in young people for anything that allows people to feel seen or heard or validated.
1: Would you like to be the most interesting person at your next cocktail party? Want to be the person who always has a great answer to the question, read any good books lately? Want to get smarter without cutting into your precious Netflix binge time? Well, allow me to introduce you to the next big idea app. Our curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Cain, and Daniel Pink have handpicked hundreds of the best new books, and we've worked directly with the authors of those books to create 12-minute audio summaries. Unlike other book summary apps, these aren't written by side-hustling college students. They're written and read by the authors themselves. And that's not all you'll find once you download the app. We also have masterclasses from authors like Shankar Vedantam and Lisa Feldman Barrett ad-free versions of this podcast and exclusive author interviews you can't find anywhere else. There is no better way to get smart fast. Download the Next Big Idea app today by going to your app store and searching for Next Big Idea. What I think is so interesting about this kind of this exercise of of, of us all t- making efforts to become futurists is we want to be more mindful of future unintended consequences. We want to be intentional about all the sort of after effects of the changes that are introduced into our world. And probably like we want to live in ways that are more connected. And I, I'm fascinated by what you said about the... Um, young people embracing a platform that caused your emotions and feelings (laughs) Mm -hmm. to sort of flow out into the world. I mean, it it had struck me with Neuralase, you know, uh, Elon Musk's one Mm -hmm. of his 17 companies that one could imagine a version of Instagram where instead of sharing a photograph of yourself trekking in Nepal, you would share the sensation for 15 seconds Mm -hmm. of actually the wind on your skin and the sun and the sights, right? Yes. And and that could be, I mean, on the one hand, there's a dystopian feeling about that. But on the other hand, it's kind of beautiful.
0: Yes. Well, absolutely. So we, in our scenario, the platform was called Feel That. And we asked all of these young people, what would you want to feel? Maybe that you've never felt before or that you don't feel like it is safe for you to feel? And there were some very moving answers. Somebody said that they wanted to feel their mother's pride for them. She had, she had passed. Mm. But if that had been captured and she could feel how proud her mom was of her and that she could maybe pass that down through the generations. They talked about having feelings that you could pass down for generations. Um, was, was beautiful. Young people exploring their sexuality who didn't feel it was safe in regions of the world where it is illegal for certain sexual practices or relationships. Could they explore that through a feel that network? Um, it's a weird, wonderful side effect of bringing people from around the world together to play with these future scenarios is that they do give you a glimpse into other people's inner lives, what they actually do hope for or what they worry about. And, and it's it's almost completely tangential to actually being ready for the future is I feel like my empathy for other people's mm, lives yeah. has really expanded from hearing what people would do with different technologies or how they would adapt to different scenarios.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I can see that. Well, Jane, what what other are there any other future scenarios that you think our listeners should consider in these mm. final final minutes here? Um,
0: <laughs> well, say okay, things if you're not paying attention to things to pay attention to, uh, government mandated internet shutdowns is a huge future force that is spreading globally, and if you're not aware of this phenomenon and not potentially prepared to live Mm, through Mm -hmm. weeks or months of the government turning off the internet, something to think about. I also think climate migration, starting to be willing to think about the risks where we live. Are we in a climate secure, climate resilient place that will probably be welcoming others who are migrating out of climate unsafe regions. So we should be prepared to see a higher density of living, to be welcoming to people who've been forcibly displaced. Are we emotionally ready for that? Are we economically Mm -hmm. ready for Mm -hmm. that? Or also just think about, you know, what are our pathways to move if we need to? That is something that every serious futurist that I know, the number one thing they're thinking about are Pathways of human movement within countries, across borders. How can we support people economically, socially, mentally, psychologically? How can we make a home, you know, wherever we are? That's that's a problem space that warrants so much imagination and innovation and creativity. If I could get, you know, all the smartest minds uh, on the planet to work on something. It would be really thinking about movement. That is the biggest, I think, future scenario that would benefit from our imagination and also our innovation.
1: Well, it was so great to see this reception in Europe to Ukrainian refugees mm-hmm. in recent months, right? This sort of people welcoming refugees into their homes. And um, I I, but I think the first thing that comes to people's minds is when they think of, of sort of large scale urgent migration is just utter, you know, catastrophe, Um, but, but there's certainly, and that's obviously something we need to avoid.
0: Well, Um, and, and my favorite scenario from the book, it's called the welcome party. It imagines a 10 year planned, safe, equitable, fully economically supported my climate migration, where we could avoid the urgency. Avoid the chaos. Um, give people more of a say in where they move. Give cities and countries that welcome people more support. You know, allow allow it to be a win win for everybody to to facilitate this movement and to take some of that urgency out of it because the urgency is where the fear comes from, the suffering comes from, the scarcity comes from. If we if we start, you know, to imagine. What what we could do with that that time spaciousness, right? That that we yeah, were talking about yeah, earlier, yeah. bringing that to some of these problems is a, is a real gift, I think, um, that we can take advantage of.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and Jane, is there any hope for flying cars? I I, I had um, <laughs> I, in my hypothetical in ten years, I'm picking you up in an electrified 1973 Cadillac, but I'm really kind of hopeful that we'll actually get the flying cars.
0: I mean they do exist, right? I think yeah. the, the the right search term is is road ready flying vehicles. They've sort yeah. of switched yeah. it around. <laughs> right. But right. but I mean the, the the question of personal mobility is absolutely fascinating. Mm. Um, I'm a little more excited by like, you know, high speed trains myself than getting yes. in a flying car. But, you know, it's it's funny you mentioned that because one thing we say is like, there are certain images of the future that outlive their usefulness. Yeah, And definitely like the jetpacks, the flying cars, that was a symbol of the future for many decades. And yeah, I think what yeah. we're looking for now are, are what are the new symbols of hope for the future. You know, what do we want to exist in the future that doesn't exist today? And it, it might be, you know, to me, like I think about pan cancer vaccines, you mm-hmm. know, to yeah. me that that's my flying jetpack. That's the world, you know, I want to wake up in or, or 3d printers for organs, you know, so that, that yeah. we don't have an organ donation crisis. So, and, 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 and that's one of the fun things about practicing these future habits. We can replace the old images of the future with new ones that can, can help us dream of, of really fantastic worlds.
1: I love that. Well, Jane, I'm going to RSVP for your book club meeting in 2033, yes. which I think everyone's invited to. And I hope to see tens of millions of future futurists uh, <laughs> on that call. But it's it's everybody's going to love this book, Imaginable, How to See the Future Coming and Feel Ready for Anything, even Things That Seem Impossible Today.
0: And, um, and yeah. it's not millions yet, but it's thousands if people want to play the games in the book with others there is a community where you can come and do that we're running these social simulations from the book so you don't have to play just by yourself you can come play with people from around the world at urgentoptimists.org and um, it is super fun and i'm the host and we're doing game nights and we're doing signals of hope scavenger hunts and i'm having a blast and so um it's it's a book that you play along as you read
1: Amazing. Well, I, I hope to see you before 2033, <laughs> Jane. And thank you so much. Just utterly fascinating. And uh, uh, thank you for for this book and, your, and for being with us today. Thank you, Rufus. As I think most listeners know, our mission here at the Next Big Idea Club is to connect readers and writers in powerful new ways. And one of the ways we do that is by inviting our favorite authors to create original book summaries, which we call Book Bites. These are written and read by the authors themselves. You can read them in four minutes or listen in 10. And our app, the Next Big Idea app, has hundreds of them, a new one every single day. I thought it might be fun to bring on one of my colleagues and find out what book bites she's been really enjoying recently. So today I'm joined by Markina Ilyev-Paselli. Hi, Markina. Hi, Rufus. So Markina, why don't you tell listeners about what you do?
3: I'm the business development director here at Next Big Idea Club, and I like the club so much, I share it with friends and family all the time and would definitely be a member even if I didn't work here. So I get to work with our enterprise and corporate clients to help them deliver the benefits of the club to all of their employees.
1: By the way, if you think your team at work would enjoy membership in the Next Big Idea Club, you can email Marquina. Just send it to podcast at nextbigideaclub.com. So Marquina, you've picked a book by... That you'd like to share with us today?
3: Mm-hmm. I love this book bite from Monica Guzman. It's from her book, I Never Thought of It That Way. And I found it incredibly interesting and relevant to my life right now.
1: Let's play one of Monica's big ideas from the book, and then I'd love to hear more about that, Markita.
4: Ask how, not why. Why is a naturally curious question. But in times of deep suspicion, and fear and distrust. Asking someone why they believe what they believe feels like they're being put on the stand. It gets them to want to justify not only what they believe, but who they are. Asking why is not actually the best strategy. They'll be tempted to give you the talking points, the echoes, the things they feel they can take some shelter under. So instead of asking why, ask how. How did you come to believe what you believe? When you ask someone how, you invite them to share their story. You don't put them on trial. You ask them to take you on a tour. And as you walk alongside them, you'll find that even if you completely disagree with the conclusions they have made, even if you find their perspective and their conclusions to be just beyond the pale, you might find something in the path they took to their conclusions that you can connect with, that you can relate to. And every time you find one of those, it's like building a base camp up a mountain. You see their pain, you see their struggle, you can acclimate, you can connect, and you can climb higher in your understanding. So for example, if you were to ask someone who disagrees with you about COVID vaccines or vaccines in general, you can ask them, where are you on vaccines? Tell me how you got there. What matters to you on this? And if you just keep asking those questions and getting curious, you'll be pretty surprised what you can find out.
1: Such good advice. I am dramatically less afraid of Thanksgiving. Marquina. I'm really curious to you know, why did that hit home for you?
3: When she talks about, when Monica talks about vaccines and having conversations with friends around vaccines, I have this Wonderful group of friends that I've known even actually since elementary school. And mm-hmm. we've been through everything together. And every summer we would visit each other and hang out in someone's backyard and all the kids would play. But about a year ago, when we were going to hang out in the summer, we found out that one of the families is uh, anti vax and that caused a huge rift. Mm-hmm. So these people that I want to see again this summer, I don't know how it's going to go. And when I think about like, will, will I address that conversation? Will I confront them? I'll use some of Monica's tips and think about asking how. I want to hear the story of how they came to where they came on vaccines. And I want to hear what's important to them. And, I, and then maybe hopefully we can have some connection and maybe uh, some of the, so we can all heal together a little bit.
1: Well, keep me posted, Marquina. I want to hear how that goes. Thank you so much for sharing this with us today and uh, look forward to seeing you around the office. Thanks, Rufus. See you soon. Thanks again to Jane McGonigal. This episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kovnat. Sound designed by Mike Toda. We hope to still be making this show with LinkedIn 10 years from now. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week.